Amen. Good morning, church family. Happy Veterans Day. Um, I'm not going to make all the veterans stand up, but I will do this. If you are a veteran, will you just raise your hand so I can see all of our veterans that have served in here? I want to personally thank you as your pastor. I appreciate you, proud of you, glad you did that. Uh, it is important that we do this. The Bible says to give honor where honor is due. I know David did that just a minute ago. And, you know, there are lessons that we learn from soldiers in the Scripture. Uh, you know, King David was a soldier who wrote many psalms, didn't he? And they have been psalms of encouragement, and they have been psalms of comfort in distressful times. Uh, in addition to that, we know that uh, when Christ was crucified, it was a soldier by the cross who declared, truly this man was the Son of God. Uh, in Jesus' own ministry, a soldier came to him, and he understood authority and did not take Jesus away from where he wanted to go. And so, you know, there's many places where soldiers are honored in Scripture, and have been helpful to us, so it's good. I wouldn't hurt my feelings at all if we're known throughout the community as a church that really loves on their veterans because that's great. We have a lot of veterans in our community anyway, so that, that would be a wonderful thing to be known for. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39 this morning. We're going to finish Hebrews chapter 10 today. And uh, what, a, what a rich and wonderful uh, passage we have been looking at. What an encouragement it has been on so many levels, and here we are, uh, ending chapter 10 today. What a, not a finer passage that we could be looking at this morning than Hebrews chapter 10, 32 through 39. Now let me give you some quick context. This passage is written to those people who have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, now we're going to deal with that in just a minute. As you've seen, I titled today's uh, tech, uh, sermon, are you a shrieker or a sticker? And we're going to get to that here in the last couple of verses where we're going to look at that more closely. But for now, let's look at this passage. Here's what the Word of God says. But recall from the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you have compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done this will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrieks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shriek back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And I pray that he writes this truth on our heart today. Uh, I left the Tri-Cities area in 2003. And I went to Kentucky and spent the better part, well, about a decade in the Kentuckiana area. When I came back to the area, I found something. There was a road I used to use quite often when I lived here before called Browns Mills Road in Johnson City. It runs by the Walmart. Uh, many of you are familiar with that road. When I came back 10 years later, there was something new on Browns Mills Road that was not there when I left, and it was a turnabout. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen these things? I think we have one in town here. And uh, I, I tell you, the, <laughs> I can almost guarantee you this. What is today? November 10th or something like that? It's 
probably somebody who got on that turnabout on Browns Mills Road back on August 13th, and they're still stuck trying to figure out which way to go when they got there. When I got on that thing for the first time, I knew where I wanted to go, but I didn't quite know where I needed to go, so I went several times around to figure out which road was my connecting road to get where I wanted to go. Eventually, I figured it out and landed in Boone's Creek where I needed to be, and it all worked out. Well, in a, in a similar fashion here, what the author of Hebrews here is reminding us of is there are three positions for those who have professed Christ to be in. One position is constantly moving forward and becoming ever deepened in our faith and knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. We never move past Jesus. We just grow deeper in who Jesus is. Two, we are stuck in some sort of cycle or sin or some sort of thing like that. Or three, we are backsliding and backtracking. There is usually no standing still. It is either stuck in a cycle, moving forward, or sliding backwards. And those are the positions that uh, we usually find ourselves in. Well, in the passage today, uh, we see some interesting things that emerge uh, in, in regards to this. First thing we see right off, but recall the former days when you were enlightened. The question is here, he's attaching this here to the importance of remembering what it was like when you were first saved to enduring suffering. Um, there should be an affection. We should look back when we first came to Christ with joy. It is like our relationship to our spouse. Now, I can remember many things about my first date with Becky. They're very important. I remember where we went. We went to Starbucks. I remember what I did. I posed as a coffee drinker, even though I'm not a coffee drinker. I got a hot chocolate and put a lid on it because I knew the little droplets would kind of look like a flavored coffee and nobody would ask a lot of questions. And I didn't, I wasn't trying to necessarily say I drank coffee, but I just didn't want to have the conversation. You know what I mean? I knew she liked coffee, so that's why I picked that. I remember uh, that next week, the dates we went out on, we went to a dancing class, or so we like to call it in Baptist churches, creative movement class. So you get that later. Anyway. Well, I dated other girls before Beck, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't remember any of those first dates. In fact, I don't remember hardly any of the dates. I remember one that went really sideways with a previous girl that day. I don't remember any of the rest of them. The reason is because that day with Beck was special. That was the start of a relationship that lasted, hopefully, for one or both of our lifetimes, right? Well, in a similar fashion here, the author of Hebrews is reminding us, remember what it was like when you first came to Christ. I remember when Pastor Wallace uh, took me in his office and took me by the hand and led me down Romans chapter uh, 10 and, and directed me down the Romans road and I came to know Christ. I remember how I felt when I left there when I was a kid and I went to the creek to play because that's what every kid did in Fall Branch, right? A lot of you were close to the creek. You just played in the creek and how much joy I felt and I felt like everything was going to be fine no matter what really happened, even if things got bad. And that is what the author here is reminding us of. He is saying, look, you have to recall, remember what it was like when you first came to Christ. It is the fuel you need to keep your eye and gaze fixed on what is truly important. We watched an excellent film last night. Appreciate Danny getting that together and all those who helped with it called Pilgrim's Progress. I know some of you were there last night. Uh, let me just say this. If you've never 
read Pilgrim's Progress, you should read it. If you're not a reader, you need to at minimum get the movie and watch it. Watch it with your family. It's very good, very appropriate. In my opinion, it is one of the best stories that have ever that has ever been written, ever come out of the church. It's an allegory for the Christian life. And you just see the imagery here of um, one of the first imageries we saw in the movie was he falls into this swamp. And it's all these kind of cares and this bog bogs him down. But he recalls and remembers where he's heading. Evangelist had directed him where to go. And he is able to endure on because of that message he first heard. All right, moving on here. He goes on and he gives some specificity here. He says here there's an enduring struggle and suffering. Um, you know, one more thing before I move on to this next section here. There is a false gospel that's being propagated in our culture. There's one that is being preached and claimed to be the, the gospel, and it is not. And it's called the health and wealth gospel. And that, that gospel says if you come to Jesus Christ, you can have your best life now. You're going to be healthy. You're going to be wealthy. Everything's going to go your way. Hebrews here is being very clear, and it has been very clear, that just because you come to Christ, it is no guarantee that your life is going to get better. In fact, in some ways, it may become harder. Uh, much like the, the journey in Pilgrim's Progress we saw last night, uh, even whenever he had gotten to a point where his burdens fell off and he knew he was truly a citizen of the kingdom, the hardest part of his journey was still ahead, Right? In a similar fashion here, the author of Hebrews tells us here that just because we've come to Christ, we should not expect that there won't be suffering. There will be suffering. Look at what these early Hebrew Christians had to endure. It said, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He goes on to say this, for you have compassion on those in prison and you joyfully expect accept the plundering of your property since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one couple things here. Uh, this week, I spoke to a young man who has come to our country. He is a Pakistani Christian. So he's a Christian who is from Pakistan. Has anybody been to Pakistan in here before? don't know what you know about Pakistan, but I'm going to fill you in real quick. Pakistan is predominantly ran by Muslims. The two religions of that country are Muslim and Christian. The Muslims in that country oppress the Christians. Now, I don't know that there's executions and things like that, but in, if you're a Muslim, uh, you can be granted a much more comfortable life than you can if you're a Christian. And I said to him, I said, well, how in the world do people know if you're a Muslim or a Christian if they just see you on the street unless you actually tell them? And he told me that you are given a Pakistani name, and then you are either given a Muslim or a Christian name as your middle name, and then you have your family name. So if you tell somebody your full name, they immediately know if you're a Muslim or if you're a Christian in Pakistan. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, here's what he told me. He said, you know, he went through this point in his life. He was weighing this out. Born into a Christian family. Do I remain a Christian? And he read Muslim apologetic books. And he was, he was wrestling with this thing. What should I do? And his Muslim friends would come to him and they'd say, you know, you're a smart guy. And his middle name was Anthony. Say, Anthony, you're a smart guy. Why in the world would you be one of these Christians? You know, that concept of the Trinity is pagan. And if you become a Muslim like us, brother, think about this. You will get a job with security. You'll have a secure job. You'll get a home. We will get you started in your new life. We'll give you money. And we'll find you a wife. You'll get all those things. If you will just leave Christianity behind, recant that, and become a Muslim. It's a pretty good deal. 
from their perspective, right? What does this passage say to us? The plundering of property, since that you yourselves know you have a better possession and an abiding one, better still than a secure job, better still than a good wife, better still than a, a, a secure family, is Christ. It reminds me of the film last night uh, where faithful and Christian are going through a town that's placed along the way to the celestial city, and that town's called Vanity Fair. And in that town, what does Vanity Fair offer? Do you remember? Any fleshly indulgence you could think of. It offers drink. It offers money. It offers uh, sex. And three things that this world continually holds out to us, sex, money, and power, those are all robbed at the grave, aren't they? Doesn't the grave take all three of those things away? Well, here it says, fix your eyes, right? Just like those who are, whose eyes is fixed permanently on the eternal things, the things that are of true value and true importance, fix your eyes, church, on those things. He's saying here, don't throw away your confidence, right? Don't, don't lose the investment so far. He even goes on to be clear. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Even if persecution gets really bad. Um, I recently heard of reports of children. Just, you know, I, this really bothers me because I have children this age, eight, nine, ten years old in the Middle East who are being, they're Christians, and they're being rounded up by ISIS. And they're being tortured to death, trying to recant the faith. And they're, they're, they're dying. And I look at passages like this and I think, man, the persecution we endure here is a small potatoes compared to what those children have had to give. Um, I think of another story of, of a pastor friend of mine who went to Cuba right before the embargo was lifted. And he said there are many Christian brothers and sisters down there. Now I want you to think about this. What year did the Brian, you probably know this. What year do you think roughly the Cuban embargo started? 60s? It was the 60s under JFK, right? President JFK. So they have lived uh, under oppression. The church has been oppressed in Cuba for since the 60s until President Obama lifted the embargo. And they were telling this professor, they said, you know, uh, they said, we're really concerned about the embargo being lifted. Because when the embargo is lifted, the economy here in Cuba will get better. And that will not be good for the church. They said, because if the economy gets better here, people will become more distracted. And here's what he said to him: And the church in Cuba will become like the church in the United States. That's our fear. He said he would go and preach to these guys. They would stand out in the pouring rain for hours to hear sermons from Revelation about the seven churches. I mean, if I stood up, if I told you all, could you imagine this? Like if I said, all right, everybody, come in here, 4.30 a.m. Tuesday morning outside. I'm going to get a bullhorn and preach from the seven churches. It's going to be sleeting and raining, but we're going to go ahead and go through the Word. How many Christians do you think are going to, how many people are going to think are going to show up in the United States to hear a sermon in the freezing rain or in, or in the snow? And the answer is few to none. And so then, you know, as, my, as he was going through and preaching, he said, you know what? He said, uh, maybe we're maybe we're like that church that lost their first love. We're become too, we're too distracted. And, and tears run down his eyes. And one of those Cubans said, "Pastor, we will pray for the church in America." I thought, man, they're, they 
what hearts? And it was because they had been oppressed and they had felt that oppression and their confidence was not swayed. It was fixed on who Christ is. Verse 36, for we have endurance. So when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He goes on to say, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Uh, he is quoting here from the book of Habakkuk. And tonight, if you come back at 6.30, I'm going to look closer at this passage. I don't have time this morning to unpack the whole thing, but I'm going to be real quick with this. Habakkuk is quoted three times in the New Testament. Here, Romans, and one other time. I'll get into those tonight if you come back. What's interesting about this quote from Habakkuk is that it is hard to translate. In fact, translators are divided on exactly how to translate it. For example, this passage could be translated, the just shall live by faith. It could be translated, the one justified by faith shall live. It could be translated, just one justified shall live. It could be translated, one justified will live by faith. Isn't that interesting? All those have a different, little bit of a different nuance and meaning and bring a different richness to the text if that's what they mean. Which one's right, Pastor? Yes. <laughs> I think the answer is, it is difficult to translate on purpose because I think that the, ver the verse is multifaceted. It means all those things. It is applied in all those areas. And so, you know, in this particular passage, I think the emphasis is on the verb. What is needed for a Christian to live? They shall live. Everyone who proclaims to be a believer is either going to be delivered or they're going to be destroyed. That's the only two options for those who profess Christ. And as we've seen in chapter 10, the unfolding, what's needed? Drawing near to God. Not, not forsaking the gather of one another. It's in chapter 10. We've looked at that about three weeks ago, but we looked at it. You know, you think about one old pastor said this years ago, it's always stuck with me. What happens when you take a burning ember out of a fire and place it to the side? Does it stay warm very long? And the answer to that is, no, it doesn't. It goes out. Let me give you one example of this. Christians, we need continual, constant interaction with one another. It is how God has designed the church. It is the way we're designed. Something like prayer requests. I have a lot of things I can say about prayer request time, but I'm going to try to narrow it just to make this point of being together for prayer request time. Uh, as you may or may not know, turkeys are on sale. Thanksgiving is quickly approaching. Thoughts are turning towards Thanksgiving. We're in a missional community. We're in a Sunday school class, and we're going through taking prayer requests, and we get the run of the mills. You know, Ann Idna's ingrown toenail, all down the list. And then finally we get to one person in the prayer, prayer group list here, and they says, you know, uh, somebody says, give me safe travels while I travel out of town and see my family. Okay, we'll put that down and run the mill. And we get to one person in the room, and here's what they say. They say this. What do you think about this? importance is with interaction with other believers. You know, I'm going to be traveling back to St. Louis to be with my family for this holiday season. I'm not. I'm just pretending. And I think there's a real temptation for me to just be lazy during the holidays and let everybody else serve me instead of me serving others. Will you pray that I have a servant heart and a heart like Christ and that I will serve others without a grumbling heart but with joy? Now that's a little bit of a different prayer request, right? That kind of moves the ante up and everybody needs to kind of think about what they're requesting. 
It causes introspection. It spurs us all on to good works when prayer requests like that are said. In a similar fashion here, he is telling us here, we need to not shirk back, not pull back, not backslide, because those who do so, there is no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shirk back but are destroyed, but those who have faith and persevere in their souls. So the question this morning is, do you have that genuine faith? You know, genuine faith will have three things. It's got three main ingredients. The three main ingredients are this. It is characterized by confidence. It is characterized by endurance. And it is characterized by perseverance. That's what we have seen emerge here in chapter 10. So the question that is framed here for you is, where are you? I want to give you this closing illustration. I love literature. I think a lot of pastors do because you you love the word, so you love the written word, whether it's the Bible or it's other great minds who have penned works. One work that I really love is Homer's Iliad. I mean, have you all read it? Maybe it's been a long time, but you've read it. It is one of the best literary works that was ever made. If you don't like it, surely you'll like this. How many of y'all seen, uh, well, there's that movie with George Clooney set in the Old South. Old Brother, Where Art Thou? Old Brother, Where Art Thou? That storyline is based on Homer's Iliad. A lot of people don't know that, but it is. That's where they got the plot and everything. Well, there is a scene in Homer's Iliad where Odysseus is getting ready to pass by the sirens. Sirens are mythical creatures that, I guess they look like beautiful women, they sing like beautiful women, but they're actually... Uh, Their song is meant to cause sailors to crash into the rocks where they live and then they feast on their flesh. So they ensure destruction of the sailors that they lure in. And at this point in history, Odysseus has, they tell him, no man has ever heard the song of the sirens and lived. Well, he has got enough gall that he wants to be the only man that's ever heard the song of the sirens and lived to talk about it. So here's what he does. He instructs the men to first tie him to the mast of the ship so he can't get to the wheel or anything. And they tie the ropes tight where he can't get out. And once they've done that, he instructs his fellow sailors to put wax in their ears so they can't hear. Their ears are plugged from the song. And as they approach the ship, he begins to hear it. He tells the men before they plug their ears with wax, he said, doesn't matter what I do, if I fight and struggle and try to get out of this, you don't release me until we are out of, of earshot of the siren song. And so they're going past, the, the ship approaches the sirens and they're going past it and they're singing and he hears it and he's enchanted and he wants out of the ropes. He pleads, he screams, he calls out to the men to turn him loose and when they get past it, man, he is just, he's exhausted. He's just like, it took everything out of him to just endure that. When they cut him loose, he just falls to the ground. He's just like, he's done. He's like, he's toast. Whereas, the Carter County saying here, he's just killed, right? That's my favorite. <laughs> Brother, he's just killed, right? He is killed because of what happened. Well, there's another work from ancient literature that's not as well known as Homer's Iliad, but deals with the same mythical creatures. And that story is called Jason and the Argonauts. Has anybody ever, is anybody familiar with that story from antiquity? And Jason and the Argonauts, they face the same foe. They face the sirens who are going to call out. But they see a seer before they take off and sail down the sea. And the seer tells them they need to take Orpheus because Orpheus is the most talented musician that is alive and he can produce the most beautiful music on the planet uh, that a human being can produce. 
So Jason and his fellow sailors approach uh, right before they be, uh, make earshot of the sirens. He tells Orpheus to begin playing beautiful music and playing it loudly. And so he plays the beautiful music, and as they get in earshot, the sailors can't hear the song of the sirens. And as they go past, all they hear is the music that Orpheus plays on the ship, and they delight in it, and they sail past the sirens, no problem. Now, there's an application here, right? It's really a picture of two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it like Homer's Iliad. You can tie yourself to the mast of legalism. And you can put all the earthly restraints you can on yourself not to sin and crash your ship into the rocks of sheer destruction. Or you can live your life like Jason and the Argonauts where instead of listening to the song of the world, the beauty that it entices you with, you listen to the song of Christ. I wish we could close today with A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's one of my all-time favorite hymns. We didn't do it in the other service, so. But I love that line. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abided still. The call of the Christian faith is not about tying yourself to the mast and just constantly trying to put pressure and subduing the flesh as some have painted it. It's about taking true joy and fixing our eyes and hope on Jesus Christ alone. And just that joy keeping us sailing straight for Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You so much for this passage this morning. As we look at this passage and are encouraged to endure in such a way that, Lord, we... Uh, we are called to keep our eyes fixed on an abiding glory, an abiding possession. And it's not a thing, Lord, it's you. Lord, you are the crown jewel of heaven, Lord. And help us to keep our gaze ever fixed on you. Help us to ever keep our ears tuned to who you are. Lord, be with us now as we respond to your word. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.